All right. I'm going to assume we're on now. And I just want to say that it is a tremendous honor to host Dispatch Live for the eagerly anticipated debut of one Kevin Williamson. Kevin, say hi to the Dispatch folks. Hey, Dispatch folks. I sort of feel like I should be doing something more in character. Like, you know, you've got the basketball back there. Eggers <laughs> has a room full of liquor. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just sitting here in a in a sweater, and uh, I, I feel like I should be waving a gun around or, or something, or you know, doing something more more interesting. But yeah, hey, yeah, you should be revving a Harley or um, just First shouting all, yeehaw. I'm, I'm not a plebe. I don't have a Harley. I have a BMW. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, and I missed a bunch of that because instantly my internet went out. I'm going to assume it's back, um, and so. I've got, we've got Kevin, we've got Jonah, we've got Andrew, and we're going to talk about a bunch of uh, interesting stuff today. We're going to talk about the Martha's Vineyard immigration. Shall we call it a stunt? Is it too pejorative to call it a stunt? We're going to talk about, um, we're going to move from there into our, our new colleague, Nick's, uh, aka Ala Pundit's piece on the coming cage match between DeSantis and Trump. We're going to talk about the, uh, hold of Trump on the party. And we're also going to talk about some interesting state of the right stuff, including um, how did Mitch McConnell destroy Andrew Eggers day today? So we've got a lot to cover. Let's start with Martha's Vineyard. Um, so the state of play as of right now seems to be as, as one person put it on Twitter that maybe Ron DeSantis um, regrets sending 50 migrants to Martha's Vineyard, also known as Lawyer Island. <laughs> um, but apparently the story is the allegations are that there was a small group of migrants who met an individual who provided them with some, uh, inaccurate, possibly fraudulent information, including a brochure, uh, promising benefits that weren't available to them, put them on a plane from Texas to Florida, from Florida to Martha's, Martha's Vineyard, where they were met with open arms very briefly by the residents of Martha's Vineyard, who then sent them uh, off to Boston after a day or so on the island. And it's all anybody's been talking about since it happened. So, Kevin, Kevin, thoughts on this? Well, sure. Stunt, I think, is a, is a fair word uh, for this stuff. And of course, you know, I'm in Texas and Greg Abbott's been doing some similar things, uh, sending folks off. So a couple of things going on here. Um one is the fact that there almost certainly were some shenanigans with, uh, you know, false promises and that sort of thing doesn't negate the fact that a lot of these people actually are going these places uh, voluntarily because um, there's more economic opportunity. They've got friends and family there, that sort of thing. So the stunt itself is kind of. Um, it's in bad taste, of course, the Republicans were talking about. So, I mean, that's hardly even worth talking about. Um None of that, I think, detracts from the fact or should detract from the fact that we've got a really messed up immigration system, both the legal side, the illegal side. Um, the recent situation with the Venezuelans, I think, has been putting a particular uh, focus on the um, refugee side of it. So, you know, the uh, the sheriff of Bear County was complaining that, you know, these are people who are here, here legally and we shouldn't be, you know, treating them this way. And I, I get his point, but... 
they're here legally in the sense that they showed up at the border uh, with no documentation and no legal cause for entering the country and made asylum claims to which they are almost certainly not entitled as a legal matter and for hearings for which traditionally almost none of them show up. So, yes, they got some paperwork when they came to the border. I suppose that makes them legal in a sense. But that doesn't change the fact that we've got a really unruly system in which people are not going through the immigration process. And that is something that really we I think we have to put a focus on. And I think that overall, the stuff that Abbott and DeSantis have been doing is probably helpful and useful in doing that. Um, you know, I, I remember being in uh, Connecticut. I was living in Norwalk, Connecticut. And Norwalk, you know, nice, progressive little town. And it had a few thousand um you know, Spanish-speaking immigrants in it that nobody seemed to know about until a couple of billboards went up in Spanish in part of the town, and people lost their minds. Uh, <laughs> they were like, whoa, 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 whoa what's happening? And, um, you know, I grew up in West Texas. I've been seeing Spanish billboards since before I could read, I'm pretty sure. Um, but it is, it certainly is the case that um, what border communities particularly are dealing with is of a level and an intensity, I think, that is not generally well understood in the rest of the country, even though, in a sense now, because of the way our economy works and, and the freedom of travel in the United States, essentially every town is a border town now where you've got, you know, big immigrant populations in Northern Virginia and places like that that didn't happen 20 or 30 years ago. So I hope that um, the intended upside of these stunts will work that it'll come to pass that people in these places will say this actually does seem really disorderly and this really is disruptive and there are better ways to handle this and while abbott and desantis's um using of these people may be unkind in some way i think what is much more profoundly unkind is maintaining this uh sort of attractive nuisance of an immigration system that um encourages people to come here illegally creates a sort of permanent uh marginalized underclass of illegals and uh people who are here on kind of uh you know dodgier basis i think that ultimately has to be dealt with and anyone who's spent any time in the southwest um knows that this is a very very hard way for people to, to live they get victimized criminally uh, because they're afraid to go to the police they get victimized economically because they you know they can't work uh legally in, in a lot of cases so yeah, it wouldn't be the way I would choose to uh, uh, draw attention to this issue, but um, I think the issue is more important in this case than the um, means that we're used to draw attention to it. So I am. Um, I'm, I'm just going to respond if that's okay. Yeah, uh, yeah. I am. Yeah. I, um, I largely agree. Um, I, I where I disagree is mostly because of pangs of my own guilt. I wrote my LA Times column about this, making very similar argument. Maybe perhaps because set the dispatch retreat, we talked about this and it was in my head. But um, since then, it's become clear, I think, or it should become more likely that DeSantis's behavior was more unsavory than it seemed, than the reporting seemed a few days ago. Mm -hmm. Insofar as, you know, flying, the governor of Florida flying Venezuelans from Texas to Martha's Vineyard with Florida taxpayer dollars it's just weird man right and like <laughs> uh like if, if the point is to say that you know because he came out of the gate saying florida's not a sanctuary state blah 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 blah. okay well 
then find the Venezuelans that you say claim are the huge problem in your own state rather than you know going shopping in texas for them and so i i kind of regret the column will be up at the dispatch tomorrow and so i'm heading off criticism a little bit by saying i should have been a little harder on DeSantis. that said i think you can draw some distinctions it's like i think doug ducey has actually done it the right way i mean he's done it the right way for a guy who doesn't plan on being really popular in the Republican primaries, right? Which is to say he's shipping people in other to other places, but he's calling ahead. He's working with local officials. He's doing it in a responsible way. The irresponsibility is sort of the point for Abbott and really DeSantis. Abbott, he gets more consent, apparently, from these immigrants than DeSantis did. But he also drops these people off by surprise at Kamala Harris's house or wherever because he wants the the important point for him is the publicity rather than like right. anything else. And so I agree with you because the way I ended the column spoiler alert is that I do think it's terrible to use poor desperate people as pawns, but in a lot of ways, Democrats have been using poor desperate people as pawns for their policy preferences for a very long time. And I think both parties really should be ashamed of themselves about how we've done dealt with immigration for a long time now on the matter of using taxpayer money it is a shame that steve bannon's not out there to be able to raise some money to uh, <laughs> but i mean now that he's raised all the money necessary for building the wall he's he's got some time freed up <laughs> so uh andrew so here you know to 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 kevin's point about do events like this raise awareness about what's happening in the border this is an interesting question to me because I think if you're looking at sort of the right side of the media world, that there's this consensus of, aha, look what we've done. We've raised awareness about what's happening in the border. But I do wonder, is that what's coming through in other media? If you're if you're getting your news about what's happening through MSNBC, New York Times, NPR, et cetera, is your awareness being erased about what's happening at the border? Or is your awareness being erased about how cricket or spiteful the DeSantis stunt might have been. I guess I'm wondering if the stunt is actually having an effect, out, the intended effect outside of the right-wing bubble. No, I, th I think that's a, the, the divide that you're identifying is exactly what we've, what we've seen. And it's part of what makes it such a, you know, explosive and long-lasting Twitter-type controversy, right? Like, like if one side looks at a story and kind of like secretly feels like the other guys have put a point over on them. They don't spend their whole week talking about it. They kind of like find something else to talk about, you know, and, and right. but the story has been, um, I mean, in particular, and, and I think it's an interesting contrast because the Abbott uh, and Ducey things have been going on for a while. Um, and there was a certain amount of, wow, come on guys about it. But because it was all purely voluntary and because the, these, these migrants were going places where there was going to be some kind of uh, resources, some kind of, you know, infrastructure to receive them and an opportunity for them in DC and Chicago and wherever else, um, the story kind of faded from, from the mainstream press somewhat because it's like, okay, here's this stunt the republicans are doing um and it and it's fine um it's actually maybe to everybody's benefit so you know 
have your fun little thing and, and it's fine. But then the reason why the Martha's Vineyard thing, I mean, there's several reasons why the, why the Martha, Martha's Vineyard thing uh, has become such a, such a story, both among kind of the Republicans who have been talking about it all along and think it's like a pretty clever little way to, to highlight this problem. And also for Democrats, because I mean, for better or worse, Ron DeSantis has this, this kind of flair for, for finding these inflammatory edge cases for kind of, uh, for want of a better word, it's kind of the, the, the news story special sauce of, of sending them to a liberal enclave or a supposed liberal enclave uh, like Martha's Vineyard, where, you know, you're really like taking the fight to the Obamas or something like that. Um, and which also has things in it to get uh, to get the liberals really exercised, like the fact that reportedly they were not honest with the people uh, who were who were getting on the plane, which is, a, I mean, from that side of the from that side of the story, an enormous difference, an enormous sticking point um, between between what's happening here and what's happened previously. Um, and I think I think yeah, I mean it's 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 much 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 easier to make the case against DeSantis that this is that this is truly using people as pawns rather than entering into this kind of mutually beneficial partnership in which they agree to become your pawns <laughs> in this sort of political stunt. And I think that's 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 why we've seen all, I mean a, a a real amount of of kind of um, indignation from from uh, mainstream outlets and Democrats as well. I think we'll want to uh, pay some attention to how DeSantis responds to this, because I doubt very much that he went out and said, hey, let's make up a phony brochure and trick these people into doing this stuff. I mean, my guess is he said, let's find some people. And then he was not too interested in how it happened and, uh, you know, what steps were taken, what kind of, you know, ethical uh, considerations were in place when he was when he was running this little operation. What he pretty clearly didn't do was say, we want to do this thing, but let's make sure we do it in the most responsible and, and decent and humane way possible. So, you know, often around people like DeSantis, it's not the uh, the governor himself so much that is illuminating. It's the, you know, second, third, fourth circle of people around him and what sort of people he chooses and how he oversees them and what kind of responsibilities he gives them and what example he sets for them. I'll be really interested if, if, if you're right, and this ends up being Bridgegate, south uh, <laughs> it'll be an interesting development so yeah th this raises a question that it, and we can uh start to transition to topic two it appears that desantis is really um probably more than any other republican politician aside from donald trump mastered the donald trump ability to really infuriate um to to really press buttons to trigger the libs so to speak but it's also pretty clear that he lacks another part of the trump appeal which is sort of the trump charisma how people found him funny or out over the top or kind of a spectacle he so the, i guess the question i have and and i'll go to you kevin first and then and and we'll move from there does DeSantis have the charisma to troll his way to the nomination or does he really need more than that? You know, I'm such a terrible judge of this stuff because, you know, I, I, I pray for boring politicians, <laughs> and, uh, boring leaders. That's my, my, my preferred kind of politician is the boring kind. So, you know, given the uh, particular state of the Republican party, um and the particular character of the the trump movement if you will um i don't think it's a matter of what desantis has in the way 
of histrionic talents or what he does in the way of theatrical presentations. I think that the Trump voters connection with Trump is intensely personal and uh, there's just no way to replicate it or transfer it, um, which I think ultimately is going to be very bad news for Republicans when you've got, you know, a third of, of people who identify themselves that way. Uh, saying to you know, to pollsters anyway, not to get ahead of ourselves, that their their primary interest and loyalty is to to Trump rather than to the party or to any other set of principles. By the way, I'm I'm I'm, I'm creeped out by the way we conservatives still just say the party like we're a bunch of Chinese communists sitting around. Uh, <laughs> you know, uh, the Republican Party. There are two parties uh, out there in our system, actually, even more than that. And as I increasingly feel myself uh, distant from the Republican Party. I, I I trip over a little bit when I just say love party. So yeah, I don't I'm not sure it, it's going to matter very much what DeSantis does, at least vis-a-vis -vis Trump. So um his personal relationship with Trump obviously will matter because Trump's people are going to take Trump's direction. And um if it does end up being a knockdown drag out sort of thing, DeSantis is going to lose. At least he's going to lose um so far as those trump people are concerned they're not going to be swayed or um pried away you know jonah one thing that i notice and i don't know if you've noticed this as well but some of the people who are the most pro some have been some of the most pro-trump voices but since since he was elected and till to this day are also very very uh enthusiastic pro DeSantis. They defend him with the same degree of tenacity that they have defended Trump. At some point, you can't have to, you know, to use the, the terms from Mad Max beyond Thunderdome, two men enter, one man leaves. If it is a if it is a one on one, but at some point they will be in opposition to each other if Trump does intend to run. Um, how how does that break out? I mean, what are we are we going to see sort of amongst these pro DeSantis folks who've also been there for Trump every day during his administration? How does this all start to break out? Because something's going to have to give. Yeah. So, you know, we've been talking for. Six, seven thousand years, um, at least that's how it feels about how. Um, there's this irreducible core of the GOP base, 30%, 35% that is the fifth avenue, shoot them on Fifth Avenue base, right? Whatever Trump does, they'll take his position on it, even as his positions will change. Sometimes over the course of a day, they'll just say whatever that position is the correct position. And we've always taken pains to say uh, there are big um there are other Republicans who are really sort of anti-Hillary or anti-Biden voters. They're anti-anti-Trump. You know, there's all sorts of gradations. We know we've found it could be that we're on the verge of discovering a subspecies within that Trump base of people who still have to own the libs. Right. But might prefer DeSantis over Trump because he might be they might think he's better at it. And um and also, you know, it was interesting, all the reasons that we've all talked about, about like why Trump shouldn't be elected or nominated again, like be really bad for America and democracy and all that kind of stuff. When um, Sarah Longwell did those focus groups before the Mar-a-Lago raid, one of the 
chief things a bunch of them said about why they were pie for DeSantis and not Trump was that Trump would automatically be a lame duck and a one-term president if re-elected, and DeSantis could have two, two terms. The introduction of actual rational strategic thinking into that cohort kind of took a lot of people, including me, by surprise. Mm. And so I don't know. It could be that DeSantis costs Trump the nomination by not necessarily splitting down the middle, but shaving off some of that plurality that Trump has or not. I don't know. Our, our friend um, and actually three or four of us, this is his former colleague, Jim Garrity, um, he came up with a pretty good line for DeSantis in a potential debate with the assumption that Trump would actually be in a debate, which is when uh, they were trying to close down the schools in Florida because of COVID, when they're trying to close down the businesses in Florida because of COVID, I stood up and said, no, and you listen to Fauci. Mm, mm -hmm. it's a good line you know um i don't know that it does everything that desantis would need to do but when you start to think about it there's actually room there for desantis to sort of calve off a bunch of the actual trump base while at the same time taking a bunch of the own you know the anti-anti or the or the anti-biden crowd and you, I think DeSantis has the ability, conceivably, to convince a lot of Republicans that he's the guy to beat Biden and, and Trump isn't. Um, but all of this is just wild conjecture at this point. Yeah. Can well, I, can I just ask, I mean, uh, because I also think that's a good line, Jonah, but I'm just curious because it seems like the likeliest rejoinder from Trump if, if, if DeSantis says, you know, you... Uh, listen to Fauci and when, when you shouldn't have an I didn't is Trump just says, you know, no, I didn't. That's wrong. You know, you're making that up like and, and <laughs> yeah. just kind of blusters through it and grandstands. And we run into the exact same yeah, yeah, yeah. kind of apparatus we've been running into for five years where like suddenly it's just muddy and nobody's going to go look and it doesn't matter. And I mean, I'm just, I mean, yes, like in theory, that's a structurally uh, significant attack. But but I think it, it kind of misses the core of like why Trump like kind of keeps on rolling no matter what, just because he's un, he's he's ungettable. You can't nobody's ever kind of been able to pin him down on that just because the the alternate reality goggles for him and the people who like him are kind of strong enough that uh, I, 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 I don't know. I'm just I'm, I'm no, I, I agree. But that's my point is that we may I said we may be discovering that there is some speciation within that 32 percent that we think is monolithic among hardcore Trump supporters. I don't know. No, I don't know. So uh, this is the very definition. We've been indulging in the very definition of Jonah, what you call rank punditry. Indeed. But but let's not stop now because <laughs> uh, we have a question. And now, curiously, this question has been labeled as coming from Pleasant View Baptist Church. Now, I'm I'm imagining the entire church congregation watching Dispatch Live and voting to ask this question. But I think it's more likely somebody's using a... a, a a church internet account, but it's a good question. So I'm, I'm going to go to you, Andrew, and any, of course, anyone else jump in. Uh, the Pleasant View Baptist Church asks, does the DeSantis v. Trump dynamic open up the con con uh, consideration and option for consolidation around a third option? If, in other words, if there's Trump 1.0 versus Trump 2.0, is that it? Or is there actually an, an alternative in the ruins of that fight, could a different champion emerge? Yeah, well, so the first thing I have to say is that if 
if if all of you at the Pleasant View Baptist Church are 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 kind of crowding together and sharing one dispatch subscription, shame on you. You should all, <laughs> all be individually um you know, uh, shelling out your monthly $10 or whatever. Uh, no, I, I mean, I don't know. Right. I mean, like it's, it's, it, yes, the answer is conceivably, uh, it is still extremely early. These sort of cons- early consolidations happen all the time and then kind of, uh, drift away in the wind when the new hotness comes along. I, I don't think you could even begin to say who the next person would be. There is no kind of one B after DeSantis waiting in the wings right now that I can think of. Um, well, uh, I mean, I, I'll just, I just, Please continue. But Mike Pence thinks that's him. Just yeah, Mike Pence does think that it's him. I think I think there's a whole bunch of people in what appear to me as sort of the undifferentiated mass of them all who each individually think they themselves are the one. I just don't. I mean, what, what's the argument for 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 like, I mean, I certainly for one thing, I don't think. Martha's Vineyard is the thing that that peels uh, DeSantis off after all this. I mean, I, I don't think there's anybody who was predisposed uh, to like DeSantis before for whom this is kind of the last straw. But it, I mean, if there is something else, I just I guess I would be curious to hear from you guys, because I can hardly even conceptualize it. What the what the case would be for why Mike Pence kind of becomes the guy who steps into the breach and and yeah. consolidates the the vote. I think there's maybe some some question begging going on here in the sense that the unstated assumption is that a DeSantis versus Trump confrontation opens up the opportunity for someone better as opposed to someone worse. <laughs> Fair. Well, I'm not joking about this. No, I, no, I know. That's why we, we wanted more crushing morosity. <laughs> I am ready. I'm ready for President Kerry Lake. <laughs> tends to move in the same direction for long periods of time. And so, you know, if the Trump people at some point do move on from Trump because he's off the scene, because he's in jail or he dies or whatever, which, you know, one of these things will come to pass at, at some point in the future. Um, the the sense that they're going to move on to someone more sensible and more sane rather than someone who um, gives them a more intense and pure dose of the drug to which they have addicted themselves uh, seems to me an unlikely outcome. And as hard as it is to really think of it, because the guy tried to overthrow the government last time he was in office, there are people out there who are potentially worse than Donald Trump um, that these folks might turn to. Is that Doug Mastriano's shofar I hear? Um, <laughs> no, I don't think I, I don't think him necessarily, but um, people who aren't currently in politics, probably. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, so we have a, a a good question. Let's go back to wait a minute policy. Um, a good question that came through about what what are the effects and are there good deep dives and good reads on the effects? And the question talks about refugees in communities, but I think it's important here to parse out different categories of migrants. So you're going to have refugees who actually come through a refugee relocation program. They're a different category of migrant than asylees who come not through a refugee relocation program, but cross the border and then present a um, asylum request as a defense to deportation. And then there's another category of just flat out illegal entrants who are, they have no credible asylum claim and they're just trying to evade authorities. 
And I think these different categories of entrant have different effects with sort of the refugee as the least disruptive because they are brought in. So I'm just answering the uh, question. Uh, refugees are brought in <laughs> at a at a level of a, a high degree of intentionality, often brought into communities where there's an existing community, such as when Afghan refugees came, they were brought in and, and relocated into cities that had existing Afghan communities, allowing those communities to sort of take them in and consolidate. Very different from both asylees, who at least are there for a time here in the U.S. and for a time legally, uh, while their case is being uh, pending, or flat-out illegal entrants. And of, of the three categories, it strikes me that the flat-out illegal entrants have the have the largest sort of detri uncontrollable detrimental effect compared to the other categories. If anyone disagrees with me answering the question that I just raised. Um, I do oh, ahead, I maybe potentially disagree with one one small little point, which is that I think that one of the things that we want to try to avoid or should want to try to avoid in our process of dealing with immigration and particularly with people seeking uh, refugee status or asylums is creating uh, permanent, poorly assimilated um, immigrant communities. So we have these enclaves that um, we feed by putting you know new asylum seekers new refugees into them and i think maybe we'd be better off with a um, a model of bringing these folks in that would be more oriented toward um assimilation you know we've got you know in really surprising places so um i think on a per capita basis the area around amarillo texas has one of the highest concentrations of refugees from the middle east in the country um well, middle east and uh, and africa so they are I mean, they're syrians they're iraqis but they're the largest population is somalis and they tend to work in uh meat processing and and things like that and so now we've created this community of really poorly assimilated and probably um now difficult to assimilate uh, folks who are going to end up being a sort of a replication of the situation in Minnesota, where you've got second and third generation, you know, people who've, who've come in and just are now this permanent separate community. I think that um, that's a difficult thing to manage in a society like ours, because you're always going to have these pockets. And I think having, you know, kind of a small number of them is, um, is okay, but you don't want too many of them and you don't want them to be, um, you know, too predominant. It, it's sort of like I always say about, you know, Las Vegas and New Orleans. I'm glad they're there, but I don't want the whole country to to be that way. I'm glad we have things like um, border communities in Texas and the Cubans, Miami, and, and that sort of thing that really does add to the genuine interest and diversity of the country. But at some point you need to um, work on integrating people into the, the mainstream culture. Um, David, so I have a, old I, an unfashionable view. I have an update from Pleasant View Baptist Church. It is not the entire church speaking, uh, or entire church watching. Sadly, it's it's uh, just a, a pastor who forgot to switch accounts. So that's vaguely disappointing to me. Um, <laughs> I apologize. I apologize for for casting aspersions on the integrity of the the, the good people of, of Pleasant View Baptist Church. Can, can I can I add one thing to what you were just talking about there, there, David? Um, mm -hmm. I do think that one important thing to note when you're when you're differentiating differentiating these categories is that a a really salient um, 
feature of of kind of the the the, the contemporary illegal immigration problem, even like as opposed to what we saw like like ten or fifteen years ago um, with 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 this rash of 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 migrants who are coming now primarily from these really um, unrest torn Central American countries is that it there it's really hard to draw clear and fast lines, uh, hard and fast lines between your legitimate asylum seekers and your just kind of like you said, the, the sort of third category of of illegal immigrants without a legitimate asylum claim, because the the legal process that we have to, to separate out those two groups is horrendously backlogged and, and overrun and understaffed. Um, and it has, it is kind of the case on the ground that if you are wanting to enter America legally and not immediately get thrown out on your ear, the thing to do is to apply for asylum. And if you do that, uh, sort of whether you have a legitimate claim or not, and as Kevin alluded to earlier, many, many, many do not, uh, according to the, I mean, certainly there a lot are coming from awful places, but sort of according to the legal structures that we have, just many would will will ultimately not be approved. There is that stretching, stretching, stretching period during which they they sort of you're, you're free to move about the country, um, and and that that kind of metastasizes into the problem. So even though like uh, in a well functioning system, you might be able to like process these claims on a, on a relatively expedited basis, and and then have the kind of hard and fast categories that you're talking about. Um, I mean, a lot of the kind of immigration problems that and and, and kind of policy challenges we've had, even even dating back to to Trump uh, the, or the Trump era. Uh, is basically just how do you def- how do you, as a matter of policy, decide quickly which ones actually have legitimate claims and which ones are just saying that to stay for a while. And we did get a quick question that I'll an answer that I'll question uh, a question that I'll answer quickly. Boy, that I just completely messed that. I'm up. I'm the one drinking whiskey here, dude. I'm so I've just got diet Dr Pepper. I mean, <laughs> um, is it's not the case you just claim asylum and because and you can receive asylum because you're coming from a place that is worse to a place the united states that's better or even a place that has more crime to a place that's better with less crime the united states you have to be able to demonstrate that you're suffering persecution or face harm because race religion nationality political opinion or that you're part of a particular social group a particular persecuted social group and this is a lot of this is actually kind of a a legacy of Cold War thinking about uh, um, asylum and, you know, the, the the existence of the free world and the existence of the, you know, the Soviet bloc and the communist world. And we were the home of the free world. We were the center of the free world. And now a lot of the folks are saying, wait a minute, we need to update the whole asylum system because does it matter that you can't go home because uh, that you might be a p- particular faith versus you can't go home because you'll be killed if you don't join a gang? Um, isn't one just as oppressive or it's perhaps even more oppressive than the other? But let, let's move on to this for uh, from this for a second. And um, I'll go to you, Jonah, and then I've got to then I'll ask Andrew why Mitch McConnell ruined his day. So, Jonah, there was an NBC poll that said that only a third of Republicans have more loyalty to Donald Trump than to the Republican Party. And I'm not going to use the term the party, the Republican Party. Um, And that's down from a high of about 50 or slightly over 50 percent of Republicans um, had more loyalty to Trump than to the Republican Party. 
So the question is, is this, do we respond to this with yay, exclamation point, or yay, question mark, with the case for exclamation point, Donald Trump's hold is slipping, and the case for the question mark being, okay, fine, Donald Trump's hold is slipping, but Trumpism, the kind of trollish, own the libs, constant permanent aggression kind of mindset has just as big a hold as it ever had, C-E-G, Ron DeSantis, Martha's Vineyard. Yeah, so I think there are a lot of different things going on there. One is, it's worth remembering, because I kind of felt beclowned by events. Um, <laughs> prior to the Mar-a-Lago raid, I had written like two columns showing this divergence mm -hmm. of loyalty to the party versus loyalty to Trump thing. And um, we've been roughly here before. And then the search of Mar-a-Lago kicks in and it goes through the roof. Um, I remember our colleague Sarah Isger saying she had friends who were just texting her saying, well, um, obviously I have to vote for Donald Trump now because the FBI searched his house. And I'm just like, I can't get my, I can't get my head to connect those dots, but that's neither here nor there. My point is, is that, um, first of all, it is entirely possible that if Trump gets the limelight again, that number goes back up. Second of all, I do think that there's been a serious amount of damage to the GOP that is going to outlive Donald Trump. And um, and I should say, you know, we should just be honest here. There's a certain amount of damage that's been done to the Democratic Party that is going to outlive Donald Trump. Um, part of Donald Trump's evil superpower was to make all of his enemies, or not all of them, um, but many of them, uh, stoop to his level and violate norms to respond to his violations of norms. And so I think that, like, we are going to be off course as a country for a while because of Donald Trump, and there's going to be a lot of work to be done. I do think that the second, you remember that scene in The Godfather where, my, where Robert Duvall says, if we lose the old man, we lose half of our judges and half of our political connections. Um, the second Trump goes, like every time I talk to somebody who still works on the Hill, they still tell me that somewhere between 50 and 70% of House Republicans are closet normals. Right. And I think they are dying to get out under the out from under the thumb of Trump. And so while they'll still, there'll be still too much populism in the bloodstream, there'll still be too much of this nonsense in the bloodstream. Uh, if we can get out from underneath, if they can get out from underneath Donald Trump, I think the path towards correction becomes a lot easier to see. Um, all right, Andrew, why did, how did Mitch McConnell ruin your day? And why is it interesting? Well, okay. I, Tough uh, double question. Gosh, how do I go from <laughs> how do I go from that to the actual thing? Okay. Um, so we're talking about the Senate. Okay, this is a Senate story. Um, the The Senate, as you all know, is controlled by the Democrats on a 50-50 split with Kamala Harris's tie-breaking vote. Republicans would like to take it back. There's a few races that are really important. Um, 
to, to doing that this year. And one of them, uh, at least up till now, everyone has thought is the race in Arizona uh, with with Blake Masters as the Republican nominee back in the primary by billionaire Peter Thiel and uh, going up against uh, incumbent Democrat and former astronaut Mark Kelly. Uh, it has been an interesting couple of weeks in terms of financial jockeying in the Blake Masters race because Blake Masters, for whatever reason, maybe because he's not a politician by nature, so it doesn't come naturally to him, or he wasn't expecting to have to do the work or who knows what, but he's not a good fundraiser. He's not bringing in any money, um, really no, like shockingly little money. Um, he, had, he does not have ads on the air, uh, Blake Masters. Um, no plans to spend money on ads between now and, uh, and the election, which is usually a thing campaigns do. Maybe you've seen some ads from time to time. Um, so a big question of this race, because Mark Kelly, um, is richer than Croesus, uh, is he's got like $25 million in the bank as of his last, uh, filing and, uh, and outside Democrats are, are pouring money in too. So it's like Arizona is a wash in democratic dollars. Um, but there has been this interesting game of chicken, um, about who is going to pour the outside money into Arizona on Blake Masters behalf, because Mitch McConnell and other Senate Repu and uh, you know Senate Republicans in, in in charge of these sorts of things. Actually, no, I think it's primarily Mitch McConnell. Let's just say it's Mitch McConnell. Basically, thinks okay, um, Peter Thiel, Mr. Billionaire, mentor to Blake Masters, gave Blake Masters fifteen million dollars to help him win the primary over candidates that Mitch McConnell would probably consider to be more viable general election uh, candidates like. Uh, uh, Attorney General, I can't remember now if it's Mike or Mark Burnovich of Arizona. Um, you, Peter Thiel, gave Blake Masters all this money to beat these other Republicans. Would you kindly, Mr. Peter Thiel, also give Blake Masters a lot of money uh, to help get, improve his chances to beat the Democrat? Uh, and Peter Thiel's position appears to be, well, no, I mean, I'm, I'm just out here as a guy who believes in a particular vision of Republican politics, trying to like push those guys forward in the general or in the primaries, JD Vance in Ohio is the other candidate that Teal uh, gave a lot of support to, but now it's your job, Mitch McConnell, uh, as, as the controller of a, a ton of outside PAC money, uh, to do what you do and help your Republican nominees beat the Democrats. So there's this, there's this game of chicken and McConnell has kind of gradually been, doubling and tripling down on on this kind of threat to teal of look i'm i can spend my dollars a lot of places and i don't have a billion dollars to spend like you do um i have maybe like 80 million 100 million dollars to spend on these races and there's a lot of them that need my time and attention uh because the republican uh outlook is getting a little a little worse um sort of across the board so he's had to play defense pour a lot of money for instance into the ohio race um has poured a lot of money into the new hampshire uh race uh in in the hopes of kind of dragging down uh another democratic incumbent maggie hassan um and 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 basically just saying like hey, look here's your guy and i'm, I'm gonna i'm gonna just kind of leave him to you and it's the and and so the, to finally answer your question of of why he ruined my day <laughs> is because uh, i had written a piece about uh about all these dynamics um to go up on the site tomorrow. And then as it was being edited and things at about four o'clock this afternoon, Mitch McConnell's uh, affiliated super PAC that has been doing these donations announced uh, that it was actually yanking all of its money out of, out of Arizona, um, which uh, as 
and none of you are my primary editor on my stories, but they do sometimes tell me that I have a tendency to bury the lead. So I have buried the lead. The lead is that, <laughs> that Mitch McConnell uh, has yanked all of his dollars out of out of Arizona as of today. And so the question is, is that a feint? Is that, um, you know, stepping up the game of chicken to say, look, no, you really do actually have to put some money in Peter Thiel or other Republican groups? Or is he kind of waving a little white flag as far as the game of chicken is concerned and saying, okay, like you're not going to spend, well, whatever, I'll go, I'll, I'll, I'll look for some other path to 51 votes in the Senate. Because also, I mean, because Blake Masters is polling, polling is underwater. He's, he's been um, just kind of, I mean, one of the last things that, that you wrote at National Review, I think Kevin was, was about his whole sort of uh, abortion policy boondoggle. Um, That was kind of a real unforced error on his part. Uh, Little things like that, just, just, that just kind of, I mean, he's, he's, he hasn't run for things before and he's gotten in some of these, some of these little, little spats, but, but so the, the real, um, make a lot of unforced errors when you're a weasel. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, so the, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I, mean, I, I can't, I can't look, I'm, 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 I'm trying to keep my, keep my keep reporting objectivity so I can go yes. to his events next week. Anyway. Yeah. Um, uh, so the big question then, like, because there's a whole faction of the party that looks at moves like that from McConnell and is basically just saying, well, look, Mitch McConnell would rather be the minority leader than in a Republican majority where there are people in it who might theoretically vote him out, which to editorialize a little bit is like the most insane. Yeah. Does anyone, any serious person believe that's true? No. I mean, the answer is no. Like, and they're, they're, because I mean, Blake, even Blake Masters does not represent like an existential. I mean, like, it's not like M- Mitch McConnell is like looking at the two buttons, and one of them is Blake Masters is in the Senate, and I'm not majority leader. Blake Masters is on like his election results in way more scenarios where Mitch majority is it, where where Mitch McConnell is majority leader than 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 Mark Kelly being in there. I mean, and and and. Masters himself has has said a lot of he he went after McConnell a lot during the primary, but has struck a much more conciliatory tone during the general. So it's just this weird kind of who's going to take the blame if and when Masters loses um, jockeying that's going on ahead of time. Uh, there was a letter that the Arizona Republican chairman or chairwoman Kelly Ward sent to uh to an open letter that she sent to McConnell about a week ago saying, look, like we really think this is winnable. You got to get in here and spend, um, which I mean, McConnell knows McConnell is McConnell's not going to listen to Kelly Ward. McConnell is triangulating as best he can for a scenario where he is majority leader. I mean, that's not, that's not like uh, necessarily heroism on his part, but we all know, I mean, like it's really hard to argue. It's not what he's doing. So the, the notion that McConnell is like deliberately spiking uh, the master's campaign seems like it is more than anything else, just, just setting the stage to blame him if the likeliest thing happens and, 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 uh, Kelly goes back to the Senate over Masters. Let's put it this way, just to be clear. If you were making a movie about American politics and you had an actor playing Mitch McConnell, the actor playing Mitch McConnell would only have to ask this question once of the director. What's my motivation? <laughs> right? <laughs> there's no there's no like competing. It's, it's the only thing he cares about is being the longest serving majority leader in you know i shouldn't say the only thing but it's the only thing it is the driving at the testing point at the tipping point at the decisive moment it is the thing that forces him to do all sorts of things because he wants to be majority leader 
You know, one of the things that stands out to me about this, just and this is a little bit of a sidebar, but it's just really remarkable, is how petty the sums of money are that we're talking about. So, you know, with the, was it Politico that had the story about McConnell pulling out of Arizona, I think? And, um, you know, his, his taking his, the, his football and going home takes like $9.1 million off the table, something like that. And they said they're already ready with 7.8, I think, in uh, you know, other donors to come in and replace. So we're talking about a million dollars and change being what's 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 going on here. And uh, I, I, I guarantee you that, you know, Peter Thiel has spent a million dollars and change on things that he's forgotten about. Yeah, no, that's yeah. absolutely right. I, I would say I would say like the obviously McConnell in announcing the change is announcing it in such a way that he's like minimizing the the effect on Arizona. I mean, he, he originally pulled out like eight million dollars. And then all this other money came in and it was I, so I, I kind of think it's funny money like that, that that one million dollars thing, because because he pulled out that original eight million. And then you get this donations from Heritage Action and uh, the Great American Century and the uh, uh, Susan uh, B. Anthony List and all these people kind of come in and make up a bunch of that. And then McConnell yanks his last nine million and is like, but look, there's this seven there's this seven million that's in there, too. So, I mean, it is it is a loss. I mean, there's there's like. I don't know. Like, right, but it's just, it's amazing to me that like some major question in American politics is going to swing on a sum of money that is like Drake's black card tab this month. Right, right, right. <laughs> but I mean, but I mean, the people who are the people who are interested in like laying the blame for whatever bad things happened in November at the feet of Mitch McConnell. I mean, they've made a big deal about much smaller things than this. I mean, the, the, the going story for a couple of weeks was that one offhand comment he made about like, well, candidate quality matters. And, you know, we might not retake the Senate after all. And people were acting like that was like storming the Capitol in, in, in terms of the like actual effect on, on Republican, uh, electoral chances. But it is, I mean, I, I do take your point that a lot of this is, a lot of this is just kind of the, the, the framing thing that probably, and, and I talked to some Republican strategists just today who, and, and they were kind of, you know, taking McConnell's line on the whole thing. They were saying, look, like, it's very possible. I mean, it's, it's, it's likely that there are better places to spend these dollars just in terms of pure impact. Because, I mean, the everybody knows who Blake Masters is in in Arizona at this point because there have have been a bazillion dollars already spent on him and he comes off kind of unpalatably as very high unfavorability ratings for uh for a, a Republican first time candidate and so maybe it is better even if the polls don't look so good right now to to throw that money after Don Bulduke in in New Hampshire who's much less well known and and you know see if you can make something happen up there a little little bit of a moonshot so I I yeah I on the on a general level I, I do take your point Thank okay. you for showing me how to pronounce that name, Bullduke, by the way. I was never quite sure. I made it up just now, so don't take it up. I, I also have only <laughs> read the thing. So. All right. So we got nine minutes left, and I just don't want to leave Heritage uh, Heritage Foundation unpunished. Um, so the uh, our own Audrey and Charlotte had a great piece uh, today about the change in uh, Heritage Foundation. It, it, you know, it was never a completely above politics institution, but now one very much in the service of a, of a political agenda. And, but here's one thing I, I want to ask Kevin about this. So heritage is moving consciously in a very sort of what it might call an anti-elite or judging from its, its pushback against the peace an anti-cocktail party um, position, which is must be absolute news to the attendees at copious heritage cocktail parties uh what are what are they going to be doing barbecue parties now i you know i don't know but 
What's interesting to me is one of the central changes that we've seen is heritage retreating from its previous position on foreign policy. It opposed aid to Ukraine. Uh, it is opposed at least the most recent aid packages to Ukraine. And here is what um, Kevin Roberts says. More than any other organization on the right in the United States today, we have a clear understanding of where everyday conservatives are. And then here it comes from General Carafano. Uh, if people are a little angry at us and upset or confused or whatever, I think that's the price we're paying because I think we're doing exactly what the American people want. A, is that what a think tank should do? And B, where are they getting this idea that opposing aid to Ukraine is either what the American people want or even what most Republicans want? Yeah. Because that's not what I'm seeing here. Well, I think doing what the American people want is almost always a bad idea. And uh, <laughs> if, if think tanks exist for anything, it's to tell the American people what they should want, you know, and try to convince them of, uh, of you know, a, a more prudent and wise path in life. I think one of the things we're seeing here is um, the effects of the, you know, real organizational destruction of political parties. So since party organizations don't really have any real power anymore, other than the fact that they control um, a small amount of money and, and some ballot access and some other things, that that role is now open, and there are people who want to play that role. Um, you know, you've seen you know Fox News try to you know sort of operate like a political party sometimes. Uh, it's got hosts that really act like you know campaign managers and really frame themselves that way and frame that as their deliverable. You know, Hannity is kind of famous for this. Um, you've got various think tanks and organizations along those lines that are trying to act in that uh, capacity as well. I don't think that think tanks are really particularly well suited to that. And, um, you know, out here in Texas, I can just barely hear the heritage guys from their literal inside the Beltway office uh, <laughs> warning these inside the Beltway Washington creatures, of which they are, of course, prime examples. Um, you know, it's a it's a grabbing for power that they can't hold on to even if they exercise some you know short-term influence just because they're not the right kind of organization they don't have the right sort of skills they don't have the right kind of structure to exercise the kind of power it is that they seem to want so i think they would be better off doing what um you know think tanks are supposed to do which is think and write and persuade and come up with ideas and policy guidance and such things and that if they want to you know run a political party or run campaigns i mean that's a thing you can do and they'll take anybody <laughs> so full just full disclosure i mean i think everybody knows this but i'm an ai guy mm -hmm. i'm ai you know for life um but the i agree entirely with kevin about how the whole point of think tanks is to not give it's it's fine for think tanks to think of things to try and think of things that that might be popular, but it shouldn't try to come up with stuff because they're popular. There's a, there's a real distinction there. And uh, my favorite description of AI and of think tanks like it comes from Robert Bork, who once said that the role of AI was to be like the Irish monasteries, the Christian monasteries in Ireland during the Dark Ages. It was there to keep the light of civilization going until the masses were ready to receive it again. <laughs> and I think that the problem with heritage for a very long time, and it's just gotten worse, is that they 
Um, in, in part of it, it's donor capture and donor capture happens to all sorts of organizations. But when you have hundreds of thousands of donors, you're basically talk radio. Yep. And mm -hmm. when we all remember how Rush kept testing how critical he could be of Trump and then was just sort of like, I can't do it. And he went that way. And so did the rest of talk radio with a handful of exceptions like Mike Medved, who lost his radio show. And um, part of the beauty of the AI model and other Cato model, I mean, there are other think tanks like this, is if you have a smaller number of donors, if one of your donors says that it's outrageous what you're doing, you get rid of them. You can't get rid of 100,000, 200,000 donors and easily replace them if they're each giving 50 bucks a month. And so I think that's part of it. I don't want to say it's all determined by donor stuff. Um, but I think the Tea Party movement it also changed heritage in a significant way where heritage decided it was the Tea Party movements. They were going to be the Tea Party movements embassy in Washington rather than the sort of conservative movements, you know, monastery in Washington. And it's, it's just a different thing. Jonah, I have a great deal of experience in chasing off donors. So it was just the <laughs> part that I never really quite figured out. Although, leave it to you to say the most remnanty thing uh, of the night with the uh, monasteries and such. Well, we're going to be going into a really serious uh, com competition in the months and years to come at the dispatch of who can be more remnanty, you or I. <laughs> <laughs> Fortunately, we're not a donor-supported institution. Um, so that's, that's a bonus. Uh, okay. We've got like two minutes left and we have some Kevin specific questions. So let's, oh, let's yeah. end with some Kevin specific questions. So here's one, Kevin, what is going to be your beat at the dispatch? Um, whatever I want it to be. Uh, <laughs> I, um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm interested in, in writing, um, long reported pieces from corners of the country that, people don't necessarily understand very well, or maybe the journalists don't visit as much, although that's harder to do than, than you would think. You know, I went down to um, Owsley County, Kentucky some years ago, and I wrote this kind of famous piece about uh, poverty in Kentucky. But, you know, the, the police uh, chief down there, like knew every journalist in New York and Washington, because it always <laughs> comes up in the census is the poorest place. And someone like me goes down there every year and interviews him. And he's like, I don't know, these guys from the Washington Post, these guys from the New York Times. So, um, you know, I'm not gonna write very much about politics, I don't think, although I'll probably do some campaign stuff when there's a presidential campaign. But I wanna write more just about sort of what's going on in the country with uh, people's lives and their work and their business and the economy and things along those lines. So um, kind of more issues than uh, campaigns and such. Uh, question and I don't know the answer to this. Have are you thinking about hosting a podcast at the dispatch? Uh, or is that down the line? Yes. Um, there are plans afoot. Sweet. All right. Um, another question in our last minute here uh, from Derek. Will you still comment on the English language? I will miss that if you don't. Uh, yeah, I imagine that'll get in there some too. I don't know that I'll do a, a formal piece of my dispatch newsletter that way, the way I did for my National Review one, but um, that's kind of still being uh, sorted out a little bit, but I can't help myself. So yes, it will it will happen. David, can I ask Kevin a question? Yeah, we, you, you have less than a minute. You have negative minutes. Words that end in S when they are uh, possessive, hmm. apostrophe, do you add another S after? Yes, it's apostrophe S. 
Uh, thank you. I would like you. I would like you to have a conversation with some of my editors about. <laughs> I mean, we were out of time. You know, historically, there's been a, an exception made for um, ancient proper names, like for Jesus' sake, uh, things like that. But most style books now just go, you know, apostrophe s to make possessives, irrespective of of how the word is spelled, which I think is probably the best rule to follow. Okay, one last one. I know we're a minute over. This is to Andrew. From Phil, what kind of whiskey does Egger have on the cart behind him? Off-camera booze doesn't count. What kind doesn't he? I feel I like know, I that's... need to. So I feel like I need to do this every week. I'm not like the world's heaviest drinker. The reason this cart is in here has to do with baby-proofing my home. Um, I buy handles because they are cheaper by volume, and I'm from the Midwest. I take a long time to drink them. Um, Disclaimer, disclaimer, disclaimer. This is Traverse City whiskey that I bought when I was vacationing in Michigan the other day, the other month. Oh, that might other be the saddest that, sentence I've heard in a long time. Other than that, no, Traverse City is oh. awesome. Okay. Thank, All right. Thank you, Jonah. I love that <laughs> whole Yeah, it's a great whole spot. And other than that, I buy sort of cheap handles and mix with them. Evan Williams is back there. That's the go to. Mm. Evan Williams bottled in bond. Pretty good per. Mm per ounce uh, price. So there you go. That's been my more mistakes have been made drinking Evan Williams than almost any other liquor except for tequila. (laughs) All right. We're, we're a minute over, but that was worth it. A little roasting of Andrew to a little light roasting of Andrew to end uh, the dispatch live. Uh, Thank you guys. Welcome, Kevin. Um, We always appreciate you listening. Uh, We're going to of course have post this on the website and we'll be back next Tuesday. So thank you again.